Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at modern portfolio theory that was first developed by Markowitz and the capital asset pricing model that was developed by Sharp. And in all these models, the assumption is that, that investors are risk averse and that they like expected returns, but dislike risk, where risk is measured by the variance of returns. Both Markowitz and Sharp assume that all investors have the same estimates of expected returns, variances and correlations. If you recall, we call this homogeneous expectations. Effectively, investors are calculating machines in their worlds who make all the decisions based on maximizing expected utility. Today, we're going to take a step back and ask whether this is how people really behave if investors don't behave in the manner described by Markowitz and Sharp, then a big question is how do they behave and does it affect stock prices? And there's an increasingly growing field in this area. And this topic, behavioral finance, is linked to both asset pricing models, such as the capital asset pricing model. It's also linked to market efficiency. Market efficiency assumes that all relevant information is incorporated into stock prices. If investors are not calculating machines, maybe markets aren't as efficient as we think. So how do humans behave? Well, it seems from research both in psychology and in finance that we like to invest in companies that we're familiar with. This is called an availability bias. And they say that familiarity breeds investment. You invest in what you know about. We like to compare current events to past events and try and see patterns in the data. This is what we call representativeness. We try to judge events based on their similarity to past events. If you turn on the TV, you'll see all the TV networks employing experts such as Jim Cramer to provide investment advice to you. And many people listen to that advice. People do have a reliance on the judgment of other people. We also tend to overestimate our own ability. If we survey the room and ask how many people think they are an above average driver, I think that most of the class will raise their hands. There's some overconfidence here. We can't all be above average. It's very unlikely that in this finance class we've somehow selected everyone who's an above average driver. And yet most people will think they are above average. This is called overconfidence. We also tend to take into account how we will feel in the future if our decision today is a poor one. We call this regret aversion. If we're considering making a decision today and we're not quite sure what to do, we may choose to delay our decision because we will feel bad if we make a poor decision. Now sometimes what happens is that when we've made an investment we may do well and the stock goes up and we're happy and what investors tend to do is that they tend to sell those investments to realize the profits to show how successful we are but when we've picked a bad stock and it's gone down in value typically we just hold on to that stock because we want to avoid recognizing that we made a bad decision. We'd rather just hold it and maybe even we have some overconfidence to think that 
the stock will go back up in value again. This is called disposition. Finally, we tend to form very strong opinions about everything in life, whether it's politics, stock picking, or football teams. And it takes a very long time to adjust to new information. It is called anchoring. We tend to anchor to a view and then we adjust very slowly from that view. We have lots of biases. There are hundreds more that can be listed in psychology journals. Those are just a few of them. Two psychologists, Carmen and Tversky, were thinking about the theories of people like Sharp and Markowitz. And they said, you know what, we're not comfortable with this whole idea of maximizing expected utility. We don't think that's how people behave. And what they suggested instead was something called prospect theory. And they said that individuals don't view things in terms of expected utility. They view consequences in terms of changes from some reference level, which is usually what we have today. And if things get better, we feel happier. If things get worse compared to the present, we feel less happy. They also noted that there's gain and loss satiation. This sounds very complicated. It isn't. The mental gains or losses from some choice have the diminishing returns characteristic. What this means is that suppose we lose $100. It hurts a lot. We've lost some money, it hurts. But suppose we lose $200. It's going to hurt more than losing $100, but it's not going to hurt twice as much as losing the $100. The final characteristic that Carmen and Tversky incorporated in their prospect theory was loss aversion. Losing money produces more pain than gaining the same amount produces pleasure. Losing $100 produces more pain than gaining $100 produces pleasure. And this is a common characteristic. You often hear people talking about how they don't want to lose money. The easiest way to see and understand prospect theory and these different characteristics is through a diagram. And on this diagram, the first thing to note is that we're standing here at the reference point. This is probably where we are today as an individual, if we're thinking about our wealth. And on the horizontal axis, we're plotting financial gains and financial losses. On the vertical axis, we're plotting not our utility, but what Kahneman and Tversky term our value. If we make a gain in, in monetary terms, we feel happier. If we make a loss, we feel less happy. The black line is often called the value function. Now, does this incorporate all the characteristics that Kahneman and Tversky talked about? Well, here's our reference point. So we do have reference level dependence. What about gain and loss satiation and diminishing returns? Well, suppose we win, we gain $100. Look what happens to our value function. We feel happier. Now suppose we double our gain. Now how much happier are we? Do we double our happiness? The answer 
from this diagram is no. Our happiness does increase, but not by very much. That's the concept of diminishing marginal returns. What about loss aversion? Is loss aversion captured in this diagram? Loss aversion says that we get a lot more pain from losing $100 than we get pleasure from gaining $100. Here's the value we get from a $100 gain, whereas the value from a $100 loss, so the pain from the $100 loss, is much, much greater than the value we get from the $100 gain. So this simple diagram contains all the characteristics that Kahneman and Tversky were talking about. Now, should we take this type of theory seriously? Some of you may be thinking this is not a serious theory. Well, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics for his work on prospect theory. So this is something that economists are taking very seriously and that we're concerned about. So why are people taking prospect theory and behavioral finance so seriously? Suppose Sharp and Markowitz have got it wrong and investors aren't these calculating machines. Maybe that means that stock returns and expected returns are driven by different factors. If so, it's very important to understand what factors are at play so that investors can earn higher returns and to understand the risks that they are taking on when they invest in a stock. There's been a lot of work on this in finance over the past decade. People have been trying to investigate whether these behavioral biases influence stock returns. And we have a long list of what are called anomalies in financial markets. Anomalies are observations or events that do not conform with rational finance theory. And what we're going to do is focus on three of the most prominent anomalies. The value effect, the size effect, and the momentum effect. The value, of, the value anomaly is driven by the following observation. There is a positive association between future returns and book-to-market ratios. Yet the CAPM says there should be no relationship between anything other than betas and average returns. We have the size effect, which says that there's a negative association between future returns and market equity. Again, the CAPM says that that shouldn't happen. Finally, we have momentum where past winners tend to outperform past losers over the next 3 to 12 months. Could these anomalies be driven by behavioral biases and traits? Let's consider the value effect. There is a behavioral explanation for why book-to-market equity predicts future returns. Consider growth stocks. These are stocks with very low book-to-market values. They have very high market value, very low book value, such as Google. These growth stocks are often the focus of investor attention. They feature much more prominently in the media. There's always talk about Google and all these other high-growth tech firms. As such, because they're constantly getting attention from the media and from investors, Maybe these stocks 
are overpriced, which means in the future they're going to earn lower returns. Now consider value stocks. Value stocks have high book values relative to their market values. These stocks tend to be neglected by investors. Often they've performed poorly in the past and they're not in the headlines. That means investors don't hear about them and so they ignore these value stocks. As a result, value stocks are underpriced and so they earn higher returns in the future. If we think about Markowitz's theories and Sharpe's theories, in their world, investors know about all stocks. Doesn't matter whether they're in the media or not in the media, investors know about everything and they all believe the same thing. But in reality, that's not true. So there is a behavioral explanation for the value effect. What about the size effect? Once again, we see that small firms typically are not as well known, and so they receive less attention from investors and from newspapers and from all media. Often small firms are also perceived as being riskier than large firms. Again, this will stop investors or put investors off from investing in these firms. Finally, investors tend to listen to analyst recommendations. But if you look at the number of analysts covering small firms, there aren't very many because it's not very profitable to cover small firms. As a result, all these three things will tend to mean investors avoid small firms. And so small firms will be undervalued and they will earn higher returns in the future. That could explain why small firms tend to be undervalued and earn higher returns in the future, while the large firms are overvalued and tend to earn lower returns in the future. Finally, we have the momentum effect. There are actually many explanations based on behavioral biases that could explain momentum. We've got conservatism. Investors tend to react slowly to new information. We have representativeness. Investors believe they see patterns based on past performance. So we know past winners, if an investor sees a past winner, they think that is going to continue into the future, so they buy the stock, thereby pushing the price up even more, and we see higher returns. There's also overconfidence. Investors may ignore unfavorable market information while paying too much attention to the favorable public information. So we've seen a past winning stock starts to release some bad news. Investors ignore it. And then when they see a little bit of good news for that firm, they latch onto it and buy more of that stock. We also have positive feedback. Investors see their investment doing well and they think we should make further investments in the same stock because we've done so well with it. Now there are also behavioral biases which would go against finding momentum. The disposition effect says that we sell past winners to realize our gains and we'll hold on to the losers because we don't want to realize our losses. Well, if we did that, suppose we sell our past winners, that should mean as we sell, the price goes down for the past winners. While for the losers, rather than selling them, 
which would make the price go down even more, we hold them. So according to the disposition effect, we should not observe the momentum anomaly. And this actually leads us to a big problem that people have with behavioral finance. There are always going to be anomalies in financial, in financial markets. But anomalies rarely persist to develop new theories. As further research is done, typically you find that these anomalies tend to disappear. And we saw with the momentum anomaly, there are lots of potential behavioral biases that could explain momentum. There are also some biases which would suggest momentum shouldn't occur. And what behavioral finance is lacking is an overriding theory to suggest which biases matter and when they matter. There are many different heuristics, and what researchers are finding is that if one doesn't work to explain an anomaly, then another will. For example, are people optimists or pessimists? Well, one person can be both, but it depends on the situation. There is a big debate ongoing in the finance literature at the moment between those who favour behavioural finance and those who favour market efficiency and the rational asset pricing models of Sharp and Markowitz. No one really disputes that investors are not perfectly rational. But the key question is whether behavioural biases really have an impact on price determination. And the evidence there is not clear. The verdict is still out. For every paper that says behavioural biases do have an impact on stock prices, there's a paper saying, no, they don't. Some economists argue that the, the stock market is actually 90% inefficient. But at the same time, they acknowledge that it's very difficult to actually beat the market. They advise that investors should still hold index funds. And yet, if the market is that inefficient because of these behavioural biases, why aren't they exploiting the biases? If we know they exist, why aren't we exploiting these biases to make money? And the problem is that we don't know when a particular bias is dominating the other biases. There is no general theory. And until that general theory emerges, it's going to be very difficult to come up with a compelling story for behavioural finance. That's all I want to talk about today. I will see you in class where we're going to have a debate about behavioural finance, market efficiency and rational asset pricing models.